thank you, Karen, for um, praying for us and for reminding us of the kinds of things that we need to keep praying about and for. Um, if you have been worshiping with us for the last several weeks, we have been uh, moving through this great and very rich and powerful Old Testament gem called the Book of Ruth. And um, we have landed on this theme that runs throughout the book of this strong Hebrew word called hesed or kesed. And we, um, we know that it can be translated as steadfast love or loving kindness or sometimes just love in the scriptures. Um, and also, uh, as we've chosen to land on in our congregation, this whole idea of courageous kindness, which is going to become a, a little bit more of a theme later on in my message this morning. Um, Carolyn Custis James, who um, has written a book called The Gospel of Ruth, uh, that Greg and I have been reading through, as well as many of you, that, that kind of comes uh, as a foundation and gives us some ideas for our messages, says this about this word, hesed. Strong, it's a strong Hebrew word that sums up the ideal lifestyle for God's people. It is the way that God intended for human beings to live together from the beginning the love at your neighbor as yourself brand of living, an active, selfless, sacrificial, caring for one another that goes against the grain of our fallen natures. Hesse can be boiled down to this. Someone cares and has freely made it their business to look out for you. Someone cares and has freely made it their business to look out for you. Now Ruth, the title character of this book, embodies Hesed in everything that she does. She embodies it in her commitment to her mother-in-law, who was willing to, uh, she was willing to move to a foreign country, not only just a foreign country, but a country that were bitter enemies of her Moabite nation for a long time. Um, she was willing to leave behind family and friends and everything that was familiar to her, including her religious values and religious faith, to commit herself to her mother-in-law. It is Kessid. And this morning I want us to think about these three things. I want us to think about uh, the fact that Kessid is contagious, that can, can t- uh, Kessid is courageous, and that it creates radical change. I was trying to think of something like change-alicious or something that would make it all kind of rhyme... Um, but maybe I could just invent that, invent that. But it does create change in our lives. Now we're going to do kind of a two-chapter flyover this morning, covering the events in both chapter 2 and 3, and just kind of glimpse at them, landing a few places that I think are very important. And I'd encourage you to read chapters 2 and 3 yourself, because there's a lot of great stuff in this story that I'm not going to be able to talk about this morning that you might find helpful in your own life. But as we pick up the story, Naomi has returned to her homeland, Israel, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, has accompanied her. And to this point in the story, uh, it's really focused on these two characters, Naomi and Ruth. Naomi and Ruth, um, the difficulty, the trials, the tragedies that fall upon their lives, and the way that God uh, brings them and allows them to commit themselves to one another in a very unique and powerful relationship that is the only way they can carry on. These two women are the focus. And then all of a sudden, in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
And then it goes on to the story of Naomi and Ruth. Now, if you are a person who likes seamless communication, which I try to embody in everything I do, you would be disrupted at this point to understand Naomi and Ruth, Naomi and Ruth, Naomi and Ruth, now Boaz, and then immediately back to Naomi and Ruth. Why this injection of Boaz at this point in the story, if we're not going to find out more about him, why do we have to say anything about him? It's just kind of distracting. It's like, you know, writer ADD or something. You can't really figure out what's going on. It does raise questions. Well, who is Boaz? What's he going to do in this story? You know, is he, is he going to be a good guy? Is he going to be a villain? Who is he? How does he fit in? But we don't find out right away. The story immediately goes back to Naomi and Ruth. It just kind of teases us with this idea that Boaz is going to be a part of the story a little bit later. Which maybe is good writing. Because now you're always wondering, right? How is Boaz going to fit in? When is he going to reappear? What is he going to do? When Naomi and Ruth were planning to leave Boaz and return to Israel, Naomi encourages her daughter-in-laws both to stay in their homeland. Stay here in Moab, where you have family, where you have friends, where you know the customs, where you're familiar with everything, where everything can be, for your future. She's thinking about her daughter-in-law. She's not worried about her own sustenance. She's not worried about returning to her homeland. She's only concerned about the well-being of her daughter-in-laws, which is the embodiment of Hesed itself. She shares that with Ruth. And then, immediately following that, Ruth makes this unbelievable commitment to her mother-in-law. You know, this thing that we're familiar with. If if we're not familiar with anything else in the book of Ruth, people are familiar with those verses about, you know, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Let nothing ever separate us except for death. That strong commitment that a daughter-in-law gives to a mother-in-law, which is extraordinary and is the embodiment of Hesed. And then a little bit later... Uh, Naomi and Ruth have no visible means of support in Israel. There isn't any way they're going to survive. And Ruth demonstrates Kesed once again by agreeing to take the only job available. You know, somebody's got to help us survive. No one else is going to do it. There isn't a welfare system, so we have to figure out how we're going to put food on the table. And the only job that Ruth could get was that of a gleaner. So in uh, Jewish law, if you uh, were someone who owned land and you were growing crops, it was part of the Jewish requirement that you wouldn't harvest the corners of your lot, nor would you uh, harvest it completely the first time through. You'd take whatever you could, and then you'd let people come in, gleaners, to glean the leftovers. They would take whatever the harvesters had left behind, whatever they couldn't bundle. They'd take the scraps and the corners, which was kind of the worst part of the, the property as well in terms of growing crops. And they, you know, we're familiar with this gleaning idea. You see it all over the country. There are gleaning stations. And these are people who have food banks or they get leftover food from other places and then they distribute it in the same way uh, that, that, other, uh, that they did in the Old Testament. They gave it to the needy, to the poor, to food uh, banks and to other things. So people have leftover store at grocery stores, you know, you know the, the, the sell-by date. It doesn't make it that you can't eat it. I mean, if that was the case, I'd be dead now. 
But you know, you can, there's, there's, I mean, you, you, past the, the, the sell-by date, you can, the food's still okay. And they give it to people who come in and glean it and they put it in their food pantry, in their food bank. Or they take leftover food from a restaurant that they couldn't use that night and they take it to a shelter where the homeless can eat that day. Or they'll take leftover clothes. You're familiar with this idea of gleaning. It's still very popular today. And all of these organizations around the country call themselves gleaners based on this idea that we find in the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth uh, had to go out and glean, so she chooses a field to go to. And as she chooses this field to go to, she kind of, in our mind, chooses it randomly, right? She's going to pick up the stuff that's left behind by the harvesters. And much to her surprise, and much to our surprise as well as we lead the story, now we get back to Boaz again. Because we find out that she just stumbles across a field that's owned by Boaz. Isn't that amazing that she would go to a field that's owned by this guy who's mentioned in verse 1? And not only does she go to that field, but that day he shows up. Now we would say, if you're just reading the story, what an amazing coincidence. Or what a great piece of luck. Maybe dumb luck, but isn't that amazing how that could happen? But the Jewish culture knows nothing about dumb luck. Nor do they know anything about coincidence. It's always behind the story uh, of any story in, in God's people that God is orchestrating things, that God is behind things. There is no such thing as dumb luck or coincidence. And in fact, the Hebrew language here, as it tries to describe this scene, tells us that very thing. In verse 4, it says, just then Boaz arrived. And if I read that, I'm kind of going, wow, poof, out of the blue, just then Boaz arrived. But if you go back to the Hebrew and look at what that phrase really means, it said, wouldn't you know it? I mean, isn't this the way God functions? Isn't this the way that things would work out? Just then, Boaz arrives. And now Boaz is going to occupy a key point in this story. There's no such thing as coincidence. We believe in God's providence. We soon find out that in addition to being a man of honor and a landowner and a respected and wealthy man, the Boaz is full of chesed himself. He notices that there's someone new working in the field that day, which tells us that not only is he a landowner, but he knows not only the harvesters, the hired people who work for him, he knows the people who come in behind and do the gleaning. He's paid attention to who they are. And it's a sense that these gleaners probably go to the same field every day. To harvest, you know, I, you know, when you drive around the western suburbs, you'll go to different spots, and there'll be people who are looking for you to make cash donations to them on the corner, right? And you'll notice that it's the same people in the same place all the time. They're trying to make their money there at that place, and don't you dare trespass on their territory. And it was kind of the same way with gleaners. They would go to the same field every time, and that's where they would glean from, and that's where they knew they could get the best deal. And they knew that Boaz was an amazingly generous owner as well. And he did that, we're told. He allowed Ruth to glean there, and he was kind to her. He eventually invites her for dinner, and he he lets her be protected by his men. He tells everybody to kind of leave her alone. He he, he gives her access to the water, to the harvesters, which is unheard of for gleaners. He's an amazing man of chesed, of God's loving kindness. And what would prompt that? What would prompt that? Well, he tells us that he had heard the story of Ruth and how she had been so kind to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was a relative of Boaz. And he was so touched by that story 
that he couldn't help but be kind to her. I mean, do you see what's going on here? There's a pattern if you're paying attention. (laughs) Naomi offers her hesed to Ruth, who responds in like kind to her mother-in-law. Ruth takes the hesed of Naomi, gives it back to her, and then offers it to other people. And her story is so empowering and so amazing to this man named Boaz. He heard Ruth's story of hesed, and he couldn't help but respond with chesed himself. You see, chesed is contagious. It isn't something that you just do because you're a nice person. It's something that we spread to other people by doing it itself. Jesus was the embodiment of chesed. He shared God's loving kindness with men and women, and particularly those men and women who were on the fringes, the poor, the sick, the marginalized, the outcast. You know, in our day, the refugees, the left behind, the aliens, and the immigrants. People heard of his loving kindness, and they sought him out. Sure, widows, the poor, sinners, tax collectors, they sought him out, but also people that would not seek him out otherwise. Religious leaders heard about his loving kindness. Some even came under the cover of darkness because it was dangerous for them. But they wanted to meet this man. Roman soldiers and politicians sought out Jesus Christ because of his loving kindness. Politicians were touched by Jesus. His loving kindness spread to other people because it was contagious. Now we encourage our young people to go on mission trips so they can catch the true meaning of loving kindness themselves. And isn't that the same thing that happens with anyone who serves a ministry anywhere? I mean, if you serve in the nursery, it's an act of loving kindness to parents who go, whew, a one hour of relief. Or if you serve in our children's ministry, if you serve in any other way, it's an act of loving kindness. It's not just a burden that we carry. It's a way of sharing the love of God. And it's contagious to other people. One of the great things about our church is that we have young people, junior high, high school, who serve in our children's ministry. And children look up to those people and go, I want to be like them someday. The loving kindness is contagious. And this is the way it works in the kingdom of God. Last week I spoke about how Ruth Kessid was courageous. She left behind everything. Everything that gave her security and safety and stability to accompany her mother-in-law to Israel. Going into the fields to glean was equally equally courageous for Ruth. You know, the fields were not safe places for women. I mean, if they were safe, why would Boaz have to order his own men to leave her alone? It may say something about the quality of his employees. But he had to order them to leave her alone. And then he had to order them to protect her from others. It was a dangerous place for women to be. And so by having her there and protecting her, it was an act of courage even displayed by Boaz himself. Boaz was taking great risk in his treatment of Ruth. She was a Moabite. Jews didn't like or help Moabites. It just wasn't part of what they did. Gleaners weren't treated like dinner guests or protected by other employees or given access to water. Boaz was risking his own reputation, his stature in the community. Boaz, Kessid, was courageous. And when Ruth returns from the fields with more grain than Naomi could have ever imagined that she could have gathered, Naomi wondered where she had gone. And Ruth told her that it was a field that was owned by Boaz. And this is the turning point in the story. This is the first glimmer of hope that Naomi had seen for years. 
It was tragedy after tragedy after tragedy in her life. She had to pick up her whole family and move with her husband Elimelech out of Israel, their homeland, to the bitter enemy territory of Moab. Otherwise, they were going to starve to death. And while they were in Moab, her two sons married Moabite women, something she never imagined would ever happen in her life. And then she lost her husband. And then both of her sons died. Tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy poured into her life to the point where she changed her name from Naomi to Mara. And Mara means bitter. There wasn't even a glimmer of hope for her. It's a very sad story. But Ruth, being treated in such a kind way by Boaz, was the first glimmer of hope in her life. The darkness of her tragedies began to fade. Something good might just be happening, she imagined. Boaz was kind and generous and had a moral obligation to care for Naomi and her family because of this uh, concept of the kinsman redeemer. Which leads us to the next example of courageous Kessid. Naomi desperately wanted her daughter-in-law to find a husband. Ruth's survival and well-being depended on it. Now we've got to remember, it wasn't just, well, you're, you know, a woman isn't whole unless she has a husband or a man. That's a contemporary line of thinking. The reason she needed a husband was the only way you could survive in a patriarchal society is if a man provided for you. Women had no status. If you were a woman and a widow, you were an outcast. You could barely get anything unless a man provided it for you. She wanted her young daughter-in-law, who was already a widow and had no children, to have some kind of hope in life. And so she encourages her by kind of playing matchmaker to go back and to establish a relationship with Boaz. And the way she does it is she does this transformation in Ruth's life from a mourning woman to someone who might want to get married. Kessid fosters courage and requires courage. That's the reason that Carolyn Custis James and subtitles her book, Loving God Enough to Break the Rules. There's lots of rule breaking going on here, and it's all fostered by Kessid. It's not just rule breaking because you don't like to obey. It's not just rule breaking because the rules are bad. It's rule breaking because God's love requires it. You know, Jesus was a big rule breaker. That's why I like him so much. I mean, mean, he broke rules all the time, right? He was always in conflict with religious leaders because he broke the rules of the Sabbath. He had the audacity to give sight to the blind and to heal the lame on the Sabbath. Can you imagine such a sin? He had the audacity to let his disciples pick grain in a field on the Sabbath. It was Absolutely prevented by law. It was against the rules. Jesus was always teaching against the customary, orthodox teaching of the Old Testament by scholars. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's that rhythm that Jesus goes through. Well, you have heard it said this and this and this. But I tell you something completely different. Jesus was always acting courageously. Because he loved people so fully. And in the end, 
Jesus faced false accusations and a mob of people who only wanted him to die. And his loving kindness prevailed as he suffered and died on our behalf. Hesed is courageous. And Hesed is also transformational. It, it, it creates radical change in people. Naomi returns to Israel a bitter, bitter woman. You know, she had too much tragedy, too much sadness, an outcast in the eyes of her friends, no visible means of support, a foreign daughter-in-law who was a widow and was barren herself. Her life was much more darkness than light. In fact, light was hard to find. And her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is full of hesed. It overflows out of her life. She goes to a field to get food and returns with more than anyone should have ever been able to gather in one day. And then Naomi found out that the field belonged to her relative Boaz, who had overwhelmed Ruth with his own chesed. No longer would she worry about starving. In fact, this turning point, this great verse in chapter 2, verse 20, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. Bless him, meaning Boaz. And then she said, he, God, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. He has this moral obligation to care for us. But God has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. This woman who experienced so much darkness and tragedy and difficulty in her life finally had a little glimmer of hope that came. And that glimmer of hope began to outshine all the grief and mourning that had dominated her life for so long. She passed that chesed, that hope, that transformation along to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, by encouraging her to change her own demeanor. You know, there's a, there's a scene in there where you know, it kind of looks like Naomi is playing matchmaker and wants her to go and kind of pursue Boaz as, as a husband. And it kind of seems that way because that's exactly what's happening. And, and, and there's this whole idea about, well, change your clothes and put on some perfume and change your demeanor. And it's kind of creepy, you know, it's kind of like, you know, dress more sexy and maybe he'll like you. But that's a contemporary contemporary interpretation of what's really going on. You know, what, what Naomi's really saying is, take your mourning clothes, your sackcloth and ashes off. We know you've lost a husband and you've been in mourning for a long time. But by changing your clothes, you're letting people know that you have been restored and renewed and you're ready to marry. It's transformational. And Boaz's courageous kindness empowers him to accept a marriage proposal from a woman, which is unheard of in that day. Greg's going to talk more about that next week. All of this, you see, reminds us that loving kindness is not just something that we do because we're good people, but loving kindness changes other people. It's transformational. Now, some people like to look at the book of Ruth and they kind of say, man, this is like a great romance novel, isn't it? You know, you got these women with all this tragedy and difficulty and suffering in their life. And then, you know, Ruth, isn't it so touching when Ruth meet, you know, meets Boaz and they get married and then they have a child and oh my goodness, it's so great. And I kind of get it. That, I mean, that's kind of romantic, you know. I've never read a romance novel, but I've heard that's what they're like. 
But that would be a mistake. It's not about romance at all. It's about the power of God's loving kindness poured out into people's lives so that they can share it with other people. And it creates a radical transformation. It's about Kesed. Someone cares and has freely made it their business to look out for you. That's what this story is about. So a few years ago I read a... I read about a research project that some kids had done in an education class at a university, and the professor had assigned them to do some research on, on some urban schools, and one urban school district in particular, and they were supposed to look at uh, you know, like the test scores and progress of students between first and eighth grade in a particular school district. And so you know, they were looking at the data, they were analyzing the data, and they were noticing how kids were making progress and progressing along as you were supposed to in those grade levels, and some of it was good and some of it was bad. But then they noticed that, that, that there was a consistent time period where every student seemed to kind of jump in their performance. They, they learned more and better and tested out better than they ever had before. It was about third grade. They know, but well, that's actually kind of interesting. What does this mean? What are they doing in third grade there that, that makes such a big jump for them? What are they doing that, that changes everything? And they, and, and they looked into it more and they discovered that the kids who really jumped in third grade all had the same teacher. Over the course of time, they all had the same teacher. And so these college students, their interest was peaked. They, you know, they wanted to be good educators. And so they said, maybe we could go interview this teacher and see what she did. And so they went and they found her and they asked if they could interview her. And she said, certainly. And so they asked all the logical questions that you would ask if you're an education student and you wanted to know how to be a better teacher. For instance, did you use a special kind of curriculum? What kind of curriculum? Is that what really can account for this jump in their scores? And, then, and she said, eh, not really. I kind of used the same curriculum everybody else used in third grade. and That's what we were assigned to do, and that's what I did. Well, did you use a, a special kind of methodology? Was there something in your pedagogy that worked differently? Eh, not really. I'm pretty old school. I just kind of did it the same way I learned how to do it when I was in college. Well, did you have... Um, a number of aides or teacher's assistants that helped you so kids got more individual attention. Is that why their scores jumped? No? Well, what did you do? How, how do you account for this? And there was a long pause. And then the teacher said, I loved my students. I loved my students. I told my students I loved them. I showed my students I loved them. I loved my students. And they knew I loved them. And that's the only thing that I can think of that would explain it. You know, that's the power of God's loving kindness that he pours out into our lives. and empowers us to share with other men and women. Let us pray. God in heaven, we thank you for who you are. And we certainly are grateful for your loving kindness that has been poured out so generously into our lives every day. And we thank you for the people who do it, the people who represent your loving kindness. 
Give us eyes to see and give us hearts of compassion that will empower us to share your loving kindness with other men and women. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.